Hi, and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, new scientific guidelines were released on embryo research and the use of stem cells. We talk to experts about what's changed and what it means. Anyone who's desperate to achieve a pregnancy will understand the value in the use of these new tools. And we hear about a wave of romantic comedies emerging from South Africa that are reimagining the city of Johannesburg on film. The films cannot push away the contradictions of the city. I'm Gemma Ware in London. And I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. So Gemma, a few weeks ago, I spoke to a scientist who's been doing some pretty groundbreaking research with stem cells. These are the cells that can become anything, right? Exactly. Stem cells are basically like cellular clay. They can become any type of cell, whether it's your liver or your eyeball. Where do they actually come from? Well, there's two places to get them. First is from embryos, and these are called embryonic stem cells. The second is called induced pluripotent stem cells. Pluripotent stem cells are actually made by taking cells from a grown person, often skin cells, and turning them back into stem cells. Most stem cell research uses these pluripotent stem cells, and the scientist I spoke to, Jun Wu, just made a breakthrough with them. He found a way to use them to grow a model of a human embryo. My name is Jun Wu. I'm assistant professor at the UT Southwestern Medical Center. June is exploring what happens during the very earliest stages of pregnancy. After the egg and sperm unite, they're starting to generate what we call it a zygote. So the zygote is a single cell uh, that will start to divide and produce two cells, four cells, eight cells. And by the day five or so during the human development, they will generate a ball-like structure. They call it a blastocyst. This tiny blastocyst is made up of around 100 cells grows for around two to three days, and then it starts to implant into the lining of the womb. This process of implantation is essentially a black box. Uh, We don't know uh, much about it. And in addition, prior to that, we have really limited information about the the development of the blastocyst, uh, how they grow inside the uterus. Many women don't even know they're pregnant at this stage. Implantation happens before they'd miss a period or get a positive pregnancy test. This is also important for in vitro fertilization, where sperm and egg are fertilized outside the body. Nowadays, it's often these lab-grown blastocysts that are transferred back into a woman's womb when they are five or six days old. But after that happens, there's no way of knowing what's going on. As June says, it's a black box. For people looking to get pregnant, they just got to cross their fingers and hope at that point. This period of embryo development holds vital information for understanding miscarriages or early birth defects. Yet June says research into these issues has been really slow. Because current studies rely on the use of human embryos, but we have really limited access to these embryos. An alternative is, of course, to look and see what's going on in other animals like mice. But we know that mice and humans are very different. And so that's why June and his team decided to try a different approach. In March of this year, they published a paper in the journal Nature reporting that they'd managed to grow a model of a human embryo. We call it the blastoise. They did this using pluripotent stem cells. These are the stem cells that can turn into any other kind of cell in your body. What we have done is to fill in the gap and create a in vitro model of a human blastocyst in a culture dish using stem cells so that we can use these models as a surrogate to study human implantation and early human development. 
uh, without the need of using human embryos for the most part. These blastoids are pretty similar to real human embryos, but are different in a few key ways. Under the microscope, they look exactly the same. At this stage of development, the human embryo has an outer shell with their inner cell mass. So it's not a very complicated structure. So morphologically, they look very similar. But what's different is that if you dig deeper, we observe that there are some differences in terms of gene expression patterns. And we also observe there are some cell type that seems like they're not present in the human embryos. By gene expression, June is referring to what genes are turned on and in what cells. Since every cell in your body has all of your genetic information, which genes are turned on when is almost as important as what genes you have. What's amazing about the way these stem cells work is that once they're told what kind of cell they're going to become, they just organize themselves and kind of get on with it. That's how we can make these blastoids because the cells know where to go once you assume their identity, they know where to go. Growing these blastoids in a culture dish only takes a few days and can be done at scale. It's actually uh, very cheap to create a blastoid once you have the cells. We can easily generate hundreds of them with one single experiment. The goal of this research is to understand how the different types of cells talk to each other, what June calls crosstalk. So the cells need to work together to generate different tissues at different lineages. Crosstalk is very important, not only for early stages of development, but also for later stages in different tissues, uh, different organs. June stressed that his blastoids are never intended to be put into a real person. But he said there's a lot that can be done with them in culture. In particular, he wants to recreate what happens in one of the blackest parts of the black box when the blastocyst implants into the womb. He wants to use blastoids in tandem with a lab-grown model of the lining of the uterus, an organoid of the endometrium. You can imagine if we put these two together, the blastoid and with the endometrial cells, then we can study the crosstalk between them, how the blastoid will interact whether they will attach to the organoid or not. By combining June's blastoids with this model of the womb lining, it may be possible to study how the implantation process goes wrong in some women. This often leads to infertility. And then we can use different strategies to try to see whether we can improve the implantation. First, using our in vitro model, and then you know later on, maybe there is a potential to be applied to humans to improve the implantation of the real human embryos in the mitral. And also, on the opposite, you can use the system to develop contraceptives to prevent implantation so that the more safer, better ways uh, to do that using our system. June's lab isn't the only one trying to create models of this early stage of embryo development. On the same day June published his research, another paper was published in Nature, led by researchers in Australia who had managed to use a slightly different technique to create a similar embryo model. Well, in a major scientific breakthrough, researchers have developed a technique to potentially create models of human embryos from skin cells. Called an eye blastoid, their technique involved reprogramming skin cells to form a blastocyst-like structure. These are very new scientific techniques. They use stem cells, they mimic reproduction, and involve human embryos to a certain sense. So this is very closely regulated stuff. That's where the International Society for Stem Cell Research comes in. The ISSCR is an international body made up of more than 4,000 scientists around the world. It publishes ethical guidelines on stem cell and embryo research. These guidelines are not international law, but their recommendations are used by countries around the world to guide their own national regulations and legislation, and also by scientists in countries that don't have laws governing this kind of research. 
Academic journals and funding bodies also use them to guide the kind of research that they'll fund and publish. And the ethics committees that scientists have to get approval from look at them closely too. So they have real clout. The last set of guidelines were published in 2016, but there has been a lot of scientific progress in this field since. And on May 26, the ISSCR published a revised and updated set of guidelines. Now, these new guidelines cover a variety of types of research and the ethical questions surrounding them. These include things like human-animal chimeras, when cells from humans are transplanted into other animals to, for example, grow an organ. It also includes what's called human genome editing, when scientists change the inheritable genes of an embryo, sperm, or egg. You may remember that there was a global uproar back in 2018 when the Chinese scientist Hu Shuangqi announced that he'd created the world's first gene-edited babies. I feel a strong responsibility that it's not just make it first, but also make it uh, as example. Now, this kind of research was, and still is, very much prohibited under the ISSCR guidelines. And it's illegal under Chinese law, too. And as a result, Hu was sentenced to prison for three years in 2020. But in this episode, we're focusing on what the guidelines say about human embryo research, involving both real human embryos and also embryo models, or the blastoids, that scientists like Jun Wu back in Texas are working on. So to find out more, I called up Megan Munsey. I'm based at the University of Melbourne, where I run a research project into ethics, engagement and policy around stem cell science. Megan is part of a global team of scientists who worked on the new ISSCR guidelines. She also has first-hand experience on the real value of this kind of research. Anyone who is interested in development or who knows someone who's desperate to achieve a pregnancy will understand that the value in, in perhaps exploring the use of these new tools to shine light on, on what happens as we develop. I come from a, a background in infertility uh, clinical services in IVF, and I'm always struck by the impact this has on people. And and I think more research into why pregnancies aren't held, why an embryo that otherwise morphologically looks great but can't form a pregnancy, if we can understand anything there, then perhaps we're advancing knowledge and, and ultimately will help people. But Megan also explained how any research using real human embryos just feels different. I know from my experience in growing human embryos and creating sperm egg embryos, we used to culture them in, in four well plates. And holding up a stack of plates that contained human embryos was quite different to when I was doing my research work where I might be culturing um, some mouse fibroblasts. I do think that they have a different status. I personally don't see those embryos as, as being alive. I see them as having a potential to be alive. When it comes to the human embryo models that scientists like Jun Wu have been growing in the labs, she says that while the issues are different, these still warrant pretty serious ethical consideration. I don't equate them as being equivalent to a sperm egg embryo, but they have a particular status and they have a particular kind of uh, value that I think we need to respect, acknowledge and discuss. Megan said that the ethical guidelines around this new research really needed some clarification. The ISSCR guidelines divide research up into three main categories. There are kind of three tracks. One clearly outlines prohibited research. This is category three. The middle is research that's only allowed under and after specialised review. This is category two. The recommendation is that all research in this category should be guided by a specialised oversight committee. 
They would decide what's permissible and take into account the laws of the country where the research is being proposed. And then uh, the first category, which is exempt from specialized review. And then there's subsections within each of those. Every time the guidelines are revised from the ISSCR, some types of research get shifted around from one category to another. One of the most significant shifts this year regards what's called the 14-day rule. The 14-day limit has been in place and recognized for many decades. It's at around day 15 that an embryo develops what's called the primitive streak. This marks the start of a process called gastrulation, which is when the cells of the body start moving and separating into the beginnings of what is basically a creature rather than just a ball of cells. The 14-day rule has meant that researchers using legally donated human embryos have been generally prohibited from growing them in a lab beyond 14 days. Under the new guidelines, growing an embryo past 14 days was moved down from Category 3 and into Category 2, meaning it could now be considered by a special scientific oversight committee. What the guidelines are referring to is that there's been advances that mean that we can now grow sperm egg embryos more than 14 days. And the guideline is calling for consideration about whether we should. So there may be, on a very small number of cases, justification for doing so. The other element that's quite clear in the guidelines is that if that research were to go ahead, it must have very clear endpoints and clear justification for how many embryos and from where they would be obtained. This is by no means a big green light from the ISSCR for scientists to start culturing embryos in the lab well past 14 days. The guidelines don't actually introduce another time limit either. There's no new 20 or 30 day limit. So it's not abandoning the principle of some kind of restricted time limit and opening up a opportunity for a large number of culture experiments. But where there is a fundamental question that can't be answered by another way, perhaps we should be having an appropriate evaluation of a proposal. And the scientific merit has to be the cornerstone in this discussion. Alongside what are the current regulations of that jurisdiction? Some countries, such as the UK, have laws that explicitly prohibit the culture of human embryos beyond 14 days. So it's nuanced because it matters where you're doing it. It's also nuanced because it matters why you're doing it and whether that question can be answered by another means. There is no international consensus about this, and so the ISSCR is calling for debate. The guidelines recommend, and I quote, National Academies of Science, Academic Societies, Funders, and Regulators to lead public conversations touching on the scientific significance as well as the societal and ethical issues raised by allowing such research. They recognize perhaps this will raise some significant issues for people in the community and we need to talk about it. Another really important part of the guidelines is that doing research using human embryos should be the last resort and only turn to if there is no other way to get the same information. And this is actually where human embryo models come in, like the blastoids that Jun Wu has been developing in his lab in Texas. And Jun's experience shows why it's important to have those clear guidelines. When we first started to propose this project to the uh, stem cell oversight committee here. They were trying to find guidelines to guide our research. And unfortunately, at the time, there's no clear guidelines of how we should deal with this type of research. 
An article in the journal Stem Cell Reports had proposed some tentative guidelines, and so, with nothing else, that's what June's lab had been using. We treat these structures just like the human embryo, and we don't grow them beyond day 14. We follow that, and that's why we, uh, it's very important for the SSCR to come up with a proper guideline to guide this type of research. Now, June told me that the blastoids his lab are creating would never reach 14 days old anyway, though other labs might try. Different stem cell embryo models have a different strengths, and our model are only good at the very early stage of the human development, between day 5 or day 10. That's it. But there's an added complication when it comes to these embryo models. That's trying to figure out where day 14 actually is. Here's Megan again. It becomes quite a difficult and challenging concept to apply because there is no day zero. Day zero is when the sperm fertilizes the egg. But in model embryos, there is no sperm and no egg. They're grown using stem cells, and those may have been in culture a few days before they get to what would traditionally be seen as day zero. They also could start later. Basically, the 14-day rule kind of doesn't work. When you look at the revised guidelines, we have removed that 14-day rule in the context of embryo modelling. But we are still asking and recommending that these structures are kept in culture for the minimal time required. Another important thing is that the guidelines very specifically prohibit any attempt to put a blastoid into a real person. They also make a distinction between different types of human embryo models. There are those like June's blastoids that contain all of the component parts of an embryo. The guidelines recommend that this kind of research be overseen by a specialist committee, Category 2. On the other hand are models that only mimic specific parts of an embryo. This falls under Category 1, meaning scientists should report what they're doing, but don't need a specialist oversight process. The guidelines are making a delineation between structures that have that full potential versus the other structures that perhaps mimic only an element of implantation or early development. The ISSCR guidelines are just that, guidelines. Scientists who break them may be condemned, find themselves without a job, and unable to publish their research. But they're still governed by the laws in the countries where they do their research. In some countries, like Germany, Italy, and Russia, using human embryos is completely forbidden. In others, including Australia, Canada, and the UK, scientists can use embryos donated by people undergoing fertility treatment at IVF clinics. But other countries don't have any clear regulations in place. I asked Megan where these ISSCR guidelines fit into that international landscape. I think we have to be really cognizant that we all work within an existing framework. So how I use them and how my colleagues in Australia use them is really to perhaps start a conversation with our regulators and perhaps to ask for a change in regulation. But I think we have to be really clear that many jurisdictions have existing laws that may even have a a criminal element to it in terms of their significance. In countries where there is no law, of course, they provide a really important place to start. And I think ISSCR have kind of set that bar at the global level. And and now it'll be interesting to see how different jurisdictions respond. It was clear from my chat with Megan that the ISSCR realized these guidelines are supposed to start a conversation and that some of the recommendations, particularly around the 14-day rule, will be received very differently in different places. Yeah, and it's going to be fascinating watching the reaction around the world over the next few weeks and months to these guidelines, not just from scientists, but actually from philosophers too. So to get a head start, I called one up to get his thoughts on some of the ethical questions raised by this kind of research. 
My name is Cesar Palacios Gonzalez. I'm a senior research fellow in practical ethics at the Yuhiro Center for Practical Ethics at the University of Oxford. And I work mainly on the ethical issues related to chimera research, embryo research, and stem cell research. I asked Cesar, what are some of the main ethical issues surrounding research using human embryos? So, of course, the main ethical question that people have in mind is the moral value that human embryos have, and if actually we should even be carrying out this particular type of research. Now, the consensus, I think, within people working in practical ethics is that actually carrying out research on human embryos is morally permissible. This is actually something that we can do, that that it's not unethical to do. A key question here is that embryos used for research will eventually be destroyed. People who are against this generally hold one of two main positions. One is that human embryos are not as valuable as full-fledged human adults, for example, but that they have the potential to actually be as valuable. And it's in virtue of that potential that actually we should respect them. And the other one is that actually human embryos are just as valuable as human adults. And then therefore actually destroying them for this particular position would be tantamount to killing an innocent adult human being. For them, it doesn't matter if actually the scientific benefits would be great. Cesar had been waiting for the new ISSCR guidelines. So I asked him for his general impression. So I think actually the new guidelines are a step in the right direction because in addition to the 14-day rule, they talk about these other areas of stem cell research that many people find extremely morally or ethically problematic. For example, chimera research, the creation of gametes in a laboratory setting. And the rules actually in a very clear fashion establish what type of oversight certain type of research should have. And they draw also very bright lines about what research should not be carried out uh, at this point. But I have some reservations, for example, about how they have decided to handle things like genome editing. When it comes to the 14-day rule, Cesar said that this is a question philosophers have been thinking about for ages, regardless of where the science is. So philosophers like myself love thinking about these things. So for example, what are the ethics of the 14-day rule? The 14-day rule came into existence as a compromise. And one of the reasons that day 14 was chosen is because it's when embryos start to develop that primitive streak, a precursor of the central nervous system. And some people think that you might say that the appearance of what will become the central nervous system might be morally significant. But people, for example, who hold a pro-life position, who think that human embryos actually have moral value from the moment of fertilization, would say that this is not the case. And and likewise, people who actually hold that human embryos do not have moral value would say that the 14-day rule actually doesn't tell us anything about when an embryo is morally permissible. What do you think? Uh, I think that human embryos do not have intrinsic moral value. And actually, I think that even when the 14-day rule might have served as a bright line to like differentiate between when research was morally permissible or legally permissible and not. Actually, I am for the extension of, of, of that time limit. That's just if you focus only on the nature of embryos. But of course, other people, for example, working in political philosophy or working in other areas of practical ethics would say that actually just looking at the nature of embryos is a mistake. Because what you have to do, too, is look at the society where this research actually takes place. And actually, they say, well, given that scientific research does not occur in a vacuum, you actually have to think about the people who 
pool the resources, for example, in terms of taxes, in terms of how to engage with the government, and actually how that pooling of resources allows for scientific research to actually proceed. And once you pay attention to that, you actually should respect what these particular individuals value. Cesar said that changes to the 14-day rule are also a question about priorities. He points to a section at the beginning of the new guidelines. It reminds stem cell researchers that they should pay attention to structural injustices and how their research could help alleviate them. Now you have to think that in terms of the political space, we don't have room to discuss everything at the same time. And if you're thinking about the structural injustices, maybe discussing the 14-day rule shouldn't be the priority above everything else. So, for example, we could think that discussing other things as, as how to increase organ donation should be above in terms of priority to discussing the 14-day rule. Because, of course, that actually benefits way more people than this particular type of research at this particular time. Lots of questions there for scientists, politicians and philosophers to keep thinking about. You can read more expert reaction to the revised ISSCR guidelines on The Conversation. We'll put some links to that in the show notes. Now for our second story today, Dan, we're talking film. I'm thinking you're a sci-fi kind of guy, am I right? You're not wrong, and uh, I'm a little ashamed that you guessed it so easily. But yes, sci-fi, love it all. Well, today we're not talking sci-fi, we're talking romantic comedies, and African rom-coms in particular. Many of these films are set in Johannesburg, a city that's had a bad and violent reputation. But now a new research paper has looked at the way that these South African rom-coms are portraying Joburg in a different light. So I called up the researcher to find out more. My name is Pierpaolo Frasinelli. I'm a professor of communication and media studies at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. And I'm also a visiting professor at the Johannesburg Institute for Advanced Studies. In the last few years, I've started working on a project on African cinemas. I'm not a specialist in African cinema, but I've always been interested in film and I've developed over the years a a love affair with the the history of African cinemas, its genres, its different filmmakers and so on. And this is what I'm working on now. We're talking to you today about a particular type of genre, aren't we? So explain it to us. What I'm interested in is post-apartheid South African cinema and there are different histories to this cinema and you have a number of films which address social, political issues to do with the transition to uh, democracy. These were socially engaged films that probably dominated the period of the 1990s and the early 2000s. But in the last 10 years, at least, there's been a turn in African cinema on genre film. There have been uh, noir films, there have been gangster films in District 9. The whole world is watching. The course of human history has changed today. The ship appears to be stopping over Johannesburg City. Neil Blomkamp's science fiction movie, it is represented as a dystopian space. In the new South Africa, you can go a long way with a smile. You can go much further with a smile and a gun. 
it, it has been represented in Jerusalem as a gritty space ripe with crime and so on. And around 2015 and 2016, there were a number of very successful romantic comedies that were produced and that were shot in Johannesburg. And my piece looks at these romantic comedies. These were comedies that were done by black directors and decided to turn to more commercial cinema to deliberately target uh, broader audiences. And my piece looks at what these films do. Now, I am fully aware that I'm not members of the target audience. I started looking at this film with some detachment, trying to look at what these films do in terms of representing contemporary South Africa, contemporary class and cultural formations, and specifically how they represent Johannesburg, which is the city where all these romantic comedies are set. So you've written a piece of the conversation, but it was based on a research paper that you've recently published, which looked at a couple of different films, right? Could you explain what those films were? The piece for the conversation is based on an article that I published in a journal called uh, Social Dynamics, and it is titled Jobo Without Jobo, the Black South African Rom-Com. In this piece, I look at three romantic comedies, which are Tommy's with Something, Mrs. Right Guy, and Happiness is a Four-Letter Word. And what interested me is how this romantic comedy redefines and reimagines the city. So someone who hasn't seen these films, can I ask you to just briefly explain what happens? What, what's the story? The three films, two characters meet, uh, have some difficulties, fall in love, and then they end up together. And the romantic comedy is, of course, about the journey that leads to overcoming the obstacles and difficulties the two characters encounter. This is the uh, story of Tell Me With Something. I was writing the great African love story. Then my boyfriend at the time left me. I just don't think I found the right guy yet. You need to get out. Meet someone. When you have two characters who meet in Maboneng, which is a gentrified downtown urban area. Uh, he's a model. She's an aspirant writer. They slowly fall in love with each other, notwithstanding her doubts about his suitability because as a model is not a good match for an aspirant writer. Models are known to not be the strongest intellectuals and so on. In Mrs. Rai Guy. I knew that men were dogs. All of them. I've got a few questions for you before you propose to her. Propose. What's the first thing you thought when you met her? You have uh, Google, the main character who works in a firm. She's turned between a career and a person alive. It starts with the failed love story. She has an affair with her boss. It doesn't work out. And then she finds Mrs. Ragai, someone who is external to the corporate culture she's become part of. And happiness is a four-letter word. I met someone. Another toy boy, let me guess. A model, rapper. No, actually, he's an artist. And deep. Three very rich, very successful women who struggle with uh, finding happiness and love and a balanced life between career and romantic uh, fulfillment. What did you find in your research? What did they tell us about the way South Africans might view their city? These are all films directed by uh, black directors, which is not to be taken for granted in South Africa, where the film industry is very slowly transforming. And they try to present an aspirational view of Joburg because it's a city that is a middle class and upper class space from uh, spas to certain kinds of cafes. 
they seem to be part of a global trend to imagine cities from the global south, such as Johannesburg, as global cities, cities that embody a global urban dimension rather than a marginal uh, southern uh, dimension. And my argument is that even though the films try to present a certain image of upper middle class Johannesburg, the films cannot quite push away the tensions, the contradictions, the complexities of the city. They try to represent a global city, but at the same time, you have characters saying, I am not a creature of middle and upper classness. I have a background which is more complex than that. And these, I think, are the contradictions that are thrown up by the films. They are not simply films that celebrate consumerism and affluent lifestyles. These are films that make us think in complex terms about the multifaceted natures of contemporary Johannesburg, seen through a specific kind of black gaze. This is not the Johannesburg that all see in the same way. Who are they making these films for? Who are they aimed at? In Akino Motoso, in an interview, says uh, our purpose was to do the kind of film that had not been done, the kind of film that black audiences want to see. And it was, in a way, uh, do films for black audiences that celebrate love, that celebrate uh, romantic uh, engagement, that celebrate everyday life as uh, possibilities for pleasure, desire, uh, expression of sexuality, and so on. And, And this is something on which the three directors are all clear. We are doing these films because we want to give something pleasurable, something entertaining to black audiences who have not been sufficiently taken care of by the film industry. I know Netflix in the African continent is not a huge player, particularly because of the cost of data streaming, etc. But are these films, are they aimed at that kind of audience who are streaming? No, I bought all of them on DVDs. When they came out, Netflix had just arrived in South Africa. Netflix arrived in 2016 and is growing, but it's not growing fast. Free-to-air television is still the privileged mode of access to audiovisual content in South Africa. But what I suggest is that it is not a coincidence that these two things happen at the same time. There's this new genre that arrives on the scene and you have the arrival of Netflix and in South Africa also Showmax. And that create a space for this genre to succeed in, in that area. And I argue that the African rom-com is eminently suitable for these new forms of distribution. And we have the example of new knowledgeable uh, films such as um, The Wedding Party 1 and 2, which are available on Netflix and there were huge successes through uh, Netflix. So it seems clear to me that this new genre is eminently suitable for the kind of consumption of material you have on uh, Netflix. Thank you very much for for coming on and explaining that to us. Thank you. You can find a link to the story that Pier Paolo wrote about his research in the show notes. Now to end this episode, we've got some reading recommendations from Wale Fatade in Lagos, Nigeria. Hi, my name is Wale Fatade, commissioning editor here in Lagos, Nigeria. And my two story recommendations for this week will be one on Ethiopia's blockchain deal being a watershed moment for technology and also for Africa by Iwa Salami, a lecturer at the University of East London, where she was talking about why blockchain technology has not been fully exploited and how it can improve the lives of people and businesses. The blockchain story in Ethiopia is actually important because the Ethiopian government has just signed a deal to create a national database of students and teacher IDs. And they will do this using a decentralized digital identity solution. 
and this actually involved providing uh, digital IDs for 5 million students and this will be used to store educational records. The second recommendation is by Kinsley Ikechuku Uwagboite, a lecturer at the University of Nigeria here in Isuka, Southeast Nigeria, and he's talking about why young Nigerians are returning to masquerade rituals, even a Christian community. We have this place called Insuka, where the tradition of Omabe masquerade has been part of the cultural landscape for a while. Incidentally, Christianity is growing there, but this has not stopped them from turning to masquerade rituals. Thank you. Wale Fatari there in Lagos. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode and to the conversation editors, Michael Hopkin, Alex King, Miriam Frankel, Charles Bignot, Wale Fatade, and Stephen Kahn. And thanks to Alice Mason and Imriel Morgan for our social media and marketing. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com or email us at podcast at theconversation.com. And if you want to learn more about any of the things we talked about on the show, there are links to further reading in the show notes, where you can also sign up for our free daily email. And if you've enjoyed the show, please give us a review wherever you listen. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend, Marawani, and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sal. And I'm Dan Reno. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs>